My name's Ollie Lloyd and welcome to the Food Talk Show. On the show today, we're joined by Joanna Allen, the CEO of Grays. Grays is not exactly a brand that needs any introduction. In fact, it had its birthday. It was 15 years old just a few weeks ago. Now, when it launched, I'm sure many of you remember that it kind of turned the snack industry on its head and revolved itself around a kind of highly innovative direct-to-consumer delivery model. Today, it's one of the many B Corps owned by Unilever, and is focused really on helping people make the small changes that can have big impacts from from sustainability to health. So welcome, Joanna, and thanks for joining us on Food Talk. Thanks, Ollie. So I suppose, uh, you know, looking at your your experience at Unilever, you, know, you were working on some of their really big brands, brands like Hellman's and Rexona. What kind of, um, what drew you into working for what is essentially a teenager uh, in Grace? It's a wonderful teenager. Um... So I joined Grey's about 18 months after the business had been acquired by Unilever. And Unilever recognised that to take the business really on its next um, chapter, uh, taking it, if you like, from a sort of scrappy teenager to a, a slightly more mature 20-something, it would benefit from someone who had led businesses that were slightly more mature um, and businesses that had really understood what it is and what's needed to be successful in the kind of ubiquitous nature of the snacking industry. I joined right at the beginning of the pandemic, which now um, feels hard to to remember, but um, they were crazy days. It took me seven months to get my leadership team in a room together because they had been sort of scattered a little bit to the wind through the pandemic. And um, and I've now been leading the business for just over three years, as you said, um, most recently uh, celebrating our 15th birthday. Great. Well, I'm sure, yeah, I don't think any of us enjoyed running anything during the pandemic, So, but I'm sure starting in a new world must have been particularly hard. Now, I suppose one of the things, that I, as I alluded to in the intro, is that, you know, Grey's is a B Corp. And I think, you know, within the challenger brand world, there's been quite a lot of debate about B Corps and how come businesses like Coca-Cola and Danone, and I suppose to some extent Unilever as well, could actually be considered a B Corp. And on some level, I suppose I've got some sympathy with those challenges because the reality is that Coca-Cola is still a very large polluter of plastic. And I know Danone was recently sued even by Client Earth for not kind of addressing their environmental footprint. So I suppose, how do you kind of square the circle? And, and what I suppose, what do you think the role of, of Unilever is in the B Corp movement? So I think the first thing to say is anyone who has become a B Corp or anyone who's going through the process of becoming a B Corp appreciates the rigor and the demands, honestly, of going through that certification process. And um, they are incredibly demanding whether your ownership model is private or by a large multinational um there's no kind of free pass for for being part of a bigger organization and and i do believe that for b corp to truly be the kind of pinnacle of the future of how business should evolve which i i truly subscribe to um we have to do that with scale now as I said, I don't think that scale should come with any dilution of the standards that are required in order to become a B Corp because it truly is, as we've talked about, the kind of pinnacle of 
businesses that are being far more considerate of their um, their social, their environmental um, impact than than your standard business. I I think what is um, fantastic is as Unilever has um, either acquired or supported businesses within their portfolio to become B Corp, it has recognised that we are the businesses that are leading from the front, and that in many respects actually we can be the businesses that help um, become the shining light for how their core businesses, their bigger bigger brands um, can evolve. But I think, you know, Unilever is a business that has always had a very long-standing commitment to sustainability. I think Pullman, um, as the previous uh, chief exec, was sort of broadly recognised for being a real thought leader in that regard. And even with um, having worked in some of their big core businesses, brands like Hellman's, there is still an opportunity to advance how those businesses are operated so that they are more sustainable. And um, and there were a number of initiatives that I led when I was leading, for example, Hellman's, where we really meaningfully shifted our commitments around sustainability of ingredients. So advancing how many um, the standards really on free-range eggs, um, increasing the um, the amount of sustainable oil that was going into um, producing um, our mayonnaise. Um, and so even, you know, within those big businesses, I think there is, you know, recognition that actually sustainable business is the future. Whether you are able to achieve the pinnacle of being a B Corp or whether actually you're, you're just doing that in a core business. And I'm interested on, on, I suppose, a couple of things. So to what extent are you, as a B Corp, kind of challenging some of the other brands in Unilever to raise their game? I think less about challenge, but I think we are that that shining light, to be honest. Um, and and I think there are, you know, core businesses within Unilever who look to what we're doing um, and seek to understand it. Equally, though, I would acknowledge you know, we take benefit from being part of the Unilever family when it comes to things like our renewable energy um, strategy. And actually, Grace has benefited from being part of Unilever, um, which has enabled us to kind of get the benefit of scale when we've looked at some of those renewable energy contracts. So I don't think it's it's necessarily one way. Um, and I think it's less necessarily about challenging and more demonstrating actually what can be achieved. So in the end, if we want to, you know, see the change we all need, clearly scale scale is vital. So it's interesting to hear that. I suppose one of the other things that I think certainly vexes a lot of the brands that I work with is kind of to what degree B Corp is understood as a brand and as a marker, as a marker of, of sort of best in class, as, as I suppose we'd call it. What to what degree do you do you find in the consumer work you've done that B Corp is helping to differentiate the Grace proposition? Yeah, I think it's an interesting. Um, challenge for B Corp. I think we have to recognise that it's still in its infancy in terms of particularly consumer understanding of what B Corp is and what it represents. But I think you're seeing that grow. And I think what's interesting is that you're seeing the awareness and understanding of it um, across other stakeholders also increasing. So if I reflect on B Corp month, which was in March of this year, the number of retailers who were actively using that as a moment to promote the B Corp brands that they were selling through their um, retail estate definitely was a step on from from a year ago. Whether that's Waitrose, Ocado, WH Smiths, 
you know, high street retailers really, really using that moment in time to bring B Corps together um, and drive awareness. Uh, but definitely from a consumer perspective, it, it's in its infancy. I think we have to acknowledge that. Interesting, but I suppose the, the hope must be that if brands like Grey's are putting it front of pack as you are, it is going to help raise people's awareness of to look further into, into that brand. Um, one of the one of the things that obviously you know we're all kind of focused on at the moment is is the obesity crisis in the UK, and, and you know we don't need to go through the horrific statistics of you know whether it's two thirds of adults believed to be obese in 2021. I think you know it's fairly clear that. There aren't any easy solutions to any of this, um, but I think all of us would acknowledge, and I think you know Henry Dimbleby in his um, brilliant book *Ravenous*, I think does a good job of, of I suppose raising awareness of the role that the, the broader food industry plays in this challenge. And I suppose I'm kind of interested in in your views about the kind of push and pull here between government and corporation, and how you feel businesses can step up in this area? Because I suppose I was interested in one of your social media feeds, you flagged the fact that you were able to reduce 160 tons of sugar from your snacks in 2021, which actually for a healthy brand, sounds like not a clearly the scale you're at, it's not as much as it sounds. Um, but I'm kind of interested in on, on where you feel, you know, government and business needs to kind of do this dance to try and create the change we need. Yeah, I, I, I firmly believe that businesses will ultimately be um, driving this forward. I think um, the government, um, whether it's on health and the extent to which they've truly committed to the HFSS legislation or the most recent kind of U-turns on um, sort of climate are, are not necessarily in a position where they're going to lead us forward. Businesses can. And and to be honest, if we don't, I'm not sure who will. I, I think as a business, we've always been a healthy business that's been our differentiator in the market and and yeah we continue to make our products healthier whether it was the sugar reduction that as you mentioned we did in 2021 or um as we approach the hfss kind of legislation coming into force we did another um quite substantial round of redevelopment on our um on our flapjacks which meant that we could reduce um saturated fat by about 45 percent um on our savory range um salt further reduced um by about 64 percent so we believe that we are on a a continuous journey um but that health has always been fundamental to what the gray's business is i recognize also that you know for us to be successful as a healthy snacking business we have to taste delicious because at the end of the day, we're a food business, right? And and taste and enjoyment is the number one driver of any purchase within the food industry. Um, it's part of what makes being in the food industry a total joy. And so our opportunity and our biggest challenge is to make sure that someone can pick up a grey snack and feel like they're not having to make a compromise, which is often perceived to be the case between taste and health, but actually... When they try one of our products, actually, they don't feel like that compromise exists at all. And I think all of the food industry could be looking at how do they continue to advance making their products more nutritious while not compromising on taste? Because we know as soon as you make that compromise on taste, you'll you'll ultimately have consumers sort of walking away. So I'm interested in this because I suppose during my, my many years at Unilever, I'm, I'm traumatised by mass studies where you try and you know beat benchmarks that existed and obviously in the food world where you've got a product that has 
let's say, benefited from being not as healthy as the next generation of product. To what extent are you finding it hard to to hold those standards on taste? Because you know, because we all know certain things like sugars and salts and and flavorings are you know often perceived by consumers to be delicious. Are you finding it hard to to deliver on that mission you're talking about of of, of keeping the taste credentials high? Absolutely, it's it's our biggest challenge. And if I reflect on the number of kind of kitchen trials that we did as we were doing some of those recipe redevelopments. Um, it is a real credit to our food team that they were as persistent um, as they were because there were many moments where it felt like it was it was going to be unachievable or that we would only achieve it by compromising on some of the, I guess, truths around how we want to be making our products. You know, we don't use artificial um, sweeteners or flavorings. Um, that's been a, a kind of longstanding commitment in Grey's. But I think it, it encourages us then to look at you know, novel ingredients that are there that can help us um, on the journey. So one example um, is that we we use chicory root um, within our flapjacks. It enables us to um, maintain a, a great kind of flavor and sweetness, but actually gives us a benefit of fiber um, and, and enables us to reduce sugar. So, you know, that's grazed as a relatively small player within the snacking industry. I would challenge um, my peer and probably bigger businesses within snacks to say what are they doing um, to advance that as well because you know there is there is the game which is in the end if you're playing against a field who aren't judging themselves by the same rules as you you are fighting with you know if not one hand behind the hand you're back potentially even two yeah I think what's um what's encouraging though is that so many of the retailers that we work with have made very public commitments around improving the health of their shoppers. And so they recognize Grays um, as a as a critical partner to that. Um, they may not get that from some of those bigger players um, who don't necessarily hold themselves to the same standards of nutrition as we do, but it does enable us to have, you know, more senior strategic conversations um, with the major retailers about you know, what's the role of healthy snacking within their overall business and and how can we make it more visible, more accessible? Because ultimately, the you know, the snacking industry particularly is a ubiquitous industry, right? It's an impulsive business. You, you need to be there. You need to be within arm's reach of desire um, if you're going to be um, successful in, in getting a consumer to pick you up. And so um, we do a lot of work focused around making healthy snacks a more visible choice alongside some of the less nutritious snacks that are typically very visible in a supermarket. You know, it's interesting because it's, it's very clear that from, you know, looking at your product range, that innovation, you know, has always been and is still a very big part of, of what you do. I mean, I suppose for what do you feel are kind of the big trends and, and interest areas that you're really leaning into with your with your product development beyond health? Yeah, I would say a big area of focus is how do we make sure that we continue to get more fiber into our products? We've made a commitment around um, our products being a good source of fiber for people. We know that whilst it's not necessarily um, at the forefront in the same way that the obesity crisis is, it's it's an area of um, British diets, which is um, under, under leveraged in many respects. 
And and so what's exciting is actually looking at what are the novel ways that we can do that. Um, we're continuing to bring innovation into our savory range. Um, and really, you know, for that range to be successful, I want people to consider that instead of a bag of crisps. You know, we don't want to be a kind of niche play. Um, and to do that, it's got to be in our world, kind of in our, in our view, delicious and nutritious. Um, and from a taste perspective, it's got to be able to stack up against, you know, a pack of, you know, salt and vinegar crisps. So it's it's just as tasty as that. Um, and so we continue to do to do work in that area. Um, we continue to look at brand partnerships. So we brought out a collab with Marmite, obviously another very well-known Unilever um, brand. Um, we brought that into our savory range. And then we have uh, very recently launched a a savory flapjack which again you know the the novelty of um you know taking something that should typically be very very sweet product um as a flapjack and all of a sudden turning that on its head um because we've decided to to play with um adding marmite to it but again it's you know that bringing that novelty that excitement into the snacking industry is also really important to us but it also feels like you've also added a, a range of ingredients as well that feel like you wouldn't have used them 15 years ago. Yeah, I think... Because the British consumer is just a bit more ambitious potentially than they were. Yeah, I think you see that, right, in terms of um, desire and appetite to try different flavour profiles. We've just, um, earlier this year, year we brought launched a, a peri-peri. I don't think any of us were eating, um, you know, peri-peri savoury snacks even probably five years ago, um, let alone um, 10 or 15. So... You know, there are definitely the kind of the the banker flavors that will always do well in snacking. Um, anything that's cocoa based, um, the classics within the savory side of things in terms of barbecue flavors or salt and vinegar. Um, but we continue to to innovate. Um, you know, when I think about again some of the the flavor profiles that are real bestsellers within Grace's portfolio, chili and lime. Um, definitely wouldn't have been the snacks that my parents were snacking on um, a couple of decades ago. Actually, I came across the chili and lime the other day in in an office I was working in, which was a sort of snacking station, and they were there. Which I thought they were they had a good punch. Um, so I'm I'm interested also in in one of the trends that you know people have been talking a lot about is the idea of making unhealthy healthy, and I think you know clearly the old um, CEO of of, um, of Grey's, Adley Fletcher you know, with his urban legend is, is trying to do that kind of in the in the donut category. To what extent do you think that is going to be a major trend of trying to sort of, I suppose, transform things that are partially at the heart of some of the more unhealthy diets in the UK? Do you think that's going to be a, a big trend that we're going to see? Embraced? Yeah, when we look at um, the sort of market in the UK, you know, snacking is is such a big industry and, and there are so many, you know, millions and millions of those occasions in the kind of average British diet. And, and there are different drivers for those, right? There are moments when you want something genuinely nutritious and, and the health credentials of that are a really fundamental driver. There are moments when you want something utterly indulgent. Um, and I, I genuinely, I guess, a personal belief is that all things in moderation um, as, a, as a bit of a philosophy I think to what extent can those really indulgent moments be um, be also nutritious, I think is an interesting um, trend and, and let's see where it goes. But I think there is personally more power in 
actually, you know, if I, as a consumer, and I go back to, you know, the number one driver being taste, if, if actually I don't know that that, that product that I'm picking up maybe for that really indulgent reason is more nutritious than the other, um, you know, ultimately I think it, it doesn't necessarily matter. Um, it's more about whether it meets your, your kind of either physiological or emotive needs in that moment. Um, that's what matters most. Interesting. I mean, I think you, you touched on there the sort of the level of competition that you guys face in the snacking industry. I mean, I'm sort of, you know, when I look at um, different businesses and, and, and startup challenger brands I work with, there are certain sectors that, that I would say scare the hell out of me. And for me, one of those would be snacking because it does feel like different brands are kind of like taking out sort of different corners of the market and trying to reinvent the snacking occasion, whether it's a liquid-based format, whether it's going down protein bars, whether it's kind of, you know, even people like Forest Feast who kind of seem to do a great job of, of building distribution and independence. Um, it feels like there's just so much going on. How do you guys, I suppose, as a relatively established player, and the fact that you are, you know, a teenager, um, how are you actually trying to handle that kind of format proliferation and, and what's the sort of philosophy around how you carve out your niche within this within this category? Yeah, it's definitely a dynamic um, category. It's part of why I love being in it, actually, is um, it's ever-changing. And it's our job to make sure we understand the difference between kind of something that is going to kind of boom and bust um, versus something that is a genuine long-term trend. And we um, utilise, you know, multiple data sources in order to, to be on the front foot of that. Um, and work particularly with our, our retailers um, in order to, to sort of ensure that they are being thoughtful around a range that they're putting into store. How much space does that really justify? Um, you know, we recognize that Grey's, albeit as a, a 15-year-old brand, is a real kind of hallmark lighthouse brand, if you like, for health within a retailer. And so um, it's really important, again, that the, the brand is um, visible and it maintains its presence on shelf. But it's also one of the reasons why um, our direct consumer, our D2C business, continues to be a real asset to Grays because it gives us that real, real-time feedback from kind of what's on a consumer's head. Our Grazers are wonderful at giving us very much their kind of immediate reactions and thoughts on you know I want more of this don't do that again um why haven't I seen you know this that you did maybe a while ago kind of available again um and so that ability to just have that very immediate touch touch point on what people want um and are seeing in the snacking market is is a real asset to, to the Gray's business it's interesting. I mean, the, the D2C business is obviously where this business began. And yet my understanding is it's now, what, about 20% of, of mm -hmm. the business today? I suppose I'm kind of interested in what role for you D2C plays within your broader kind of retail commercial strategy. Because I think this is one of those challenges that so many um, challenger brands kind of struggle with working out. Yeah, as you said, it's definitely the it's the heritage of where Grey's started, um, albeit a smaller proportion of our business um, today. And I think it has a number of um, elements to it that are a real asset to Grey's and, and why we continue to to support that business. It, as I said, it, it gives us that kind of in intimacy with consumers that I think you you don't necessarily have from only being a retail business. 
it gives us um, the opportunity to ensure our data competency is really strong. And that's a competency that we then apply across the entire business. But it, it really is a legacy, if you like, of the D2C business that that capability around data and data analytics is as strong in Grays as, um, as it is. And ultimately, it enables us to have also conversations with retailers um, who are intrigued by innovation that we might be testing and learning on in our D2C platform that we might ultimately want to bring into retail. It is still very much a test bed. Um, we will typically always launch onto D2C prior to launching into retail. Um, that gives us a very immediate sense of kind of ranking um, versus our current uh, retail range. Um, it gives us a, an opportunity to kind of test and learn on um, just making sure that the quality is good, that the shelf life can be sustained. Um, you know, putting products through the post is um, in some times more difficult than putting it through a retail um, distribution chain. So it becomes and, and continues to be a, a very valuable um, element to how we do business as Grays. I'm interested in some of the words you used there about I suppose, the benefit of the D2C site. I'm interested in, in the word intimacy, right? And obviously, you know, one of the holy grails of, of brand is being able to get close to your consumer and actually truly understand them. What are you doing to, to leverage that direct consumer contact? So Bert, you've talked about, I suppose, consumer testing, some of the products you're doing, but what else do you do to, to, to leverage that relationship? Yeah, so we have um, kind of micro communities within the the D2C um, subscriber base who we might reach out to if we want um, feedback on um, particular innovations that we're developing or on renovations of recipes. So we, we did a lot actually with our Grazer community when we were doing the work on um, the most recent round of reformulations where we were able, because they are such committed fans of the Grays business, we were able to to know that actually if if they kind of gave it the the green light that we could then have real confidence of taking it into into the retail um, market um so we we very much use them in in that respect um and then we know that they are you know typically very loyal advocates for the brand um and what's interesting is i think as um we you know think about kind of the the evolving kind of media strategy for greys as a more mature business um they are often the the fans if you like who um are keeping greys present within particularly kind of social channels as well so are you using the first party data you've got from from greys website to kind of do appropriate media modeling and stuff on it so um we use it for for that definitely so we'll use it to help then um inform things like our um broader reach media um planning when we're thinking about things like um tv planning um but we also use it when we are um working maybe with a retail partner around a sampling program you know really being able to use the the profile um of our um, of subscribers and thinking about actually how do we go and find a similar profile maybe of from a Dunhumby database for example um, to make sure that then we're targeting that sampling opportunity um, most effectively because whilst we are a teenager we're still in many respects a, a very um, young brand when it comes into retail the business has really only been in retail for um, sort of seven nearly eight years so we're still young in in many regards. 
do you do you sense that if you were if you were the CEO of Grays and this is an idea that you just pitched and, and raised funds for, do you think you'd build it the same way that you've built it with a kind of a a five year run up in D to C followed by retail? Or do you think do you think the paradigm has shifted in this area where people are are more open to developing a kind of an omni-channel approach from the start? I think the the reality of the context today is radically different than it was when Grays was started. If um, if you think back to when Grays um, was born in many respects, um, it was really bloody hard to find a healthy snack in a supermarket or in a corner store. Um, and, you know, we had many subscribers who were getting their Gray's um, box delivered to their office workplace when we were all working five days a week in an office. You know, the the world has, in that respect, radically changed. And we are continuing to evolve what D2C offers um, to recognize that because, you know, now if we want um, to be a, a significant player within the snacking health, um, healthy snacking industry, you know, the reality is that industry is is much more prevalent within mainstream grocery today than it was back in 2008 when Grace first launched. Um, I think the the opportunity still of D2C businesses today is that you you have that opportunity to engage with, um, as I said, a more loyal, um, more engaged consumer base. And I think, you know, as I... Um, you know, engage with a number of kind of businesses which are either D2C only or D2C in their majority, um, you know, you continue to see that that is the advantage that you gain, right? It's that opportunity to have those one-to-one conversations with people that that the reality of a retail um, route to market doesn't doesn't enable you to have. It's funny, you, you mentioned the, the days where grace boxes were sort of delivered to people's desks. It kind of triggered for me a memory of, of my early days working in Unilever where sort of shortly after lunch, someone would head out to M&S to go and buy Percy Pig uh, uh, sweets for us all, all to snack on. That was definitely not not in the healthy camp. <laughs> um, on the basis of Percy Pigs, I suppose, are my sort of dirty snacking secret. What's your dirty snacking secret? Oh, um, I'm definitely like, uh, I'm with you on the Percy Pigs fan. Um I'm definitely more of a sweet snacker than I am a savory one. Um, I have to say, I tried the, um, I'm a big fan of Tony's Chocoloni. Um, I'm sure many of your listeners, listeners will be familiar with it. Um, I think it's doing amazing things in um, in the chocolate snacking um, section. And I tried their new little bits earlier this week. I thought they were rather scrummy too. Yeah, they, they are doing They are doing very well. Um, so, one of the things I suppose that is it's also interesting is I suppose considering I suppose because you are 15 years old, your D2C business has probably been built more by email addresses and addresses than it has by social media. And I suppose I was interested to see that actually I suppose your social media following, at least on Instagram, is kind of similar to quite a lot of startup brands like you know Bold Beans and actually smaller than even uh, Pippa Nuts. So I have to say I'm quite a fan of their their pepper, their, their peanut covered chocolate. Uh, trees. I suppose why? Where does social fit into your kind of agenda? Because I think a lot of challenger brands are completely obsessed by social. It doesn't strike me that it's your your sort of core obsession. Where does social fit within your within your remit, and how are you using it? So social for me is still an area where, because of the dynamics almost of those channels, um, it's still evolving in terms of the role it plays in our 
engagement strategy. So for me, Graze as a slightly more mature than a startup business, it's really important that we continue to sustain kind of the the top of mind awareness that we have. And um, for all of the chatter around how media consumption has changed, we know that TV continues to be one of the most effective and efficient um, routes to doing that. And so Graze has kind of um, over the past couple of years had a number of moments where we've invested behind TV. Um, then obviously, you know, acquisition channels continues to be really important to um, our direct consumer business. But where we are um, evolving our investment is um, really around uh, areas, particularly around search. So we know that that is a critical point in the conversion. But then also partnerships. And, and I think, you know, we've done some really interesting work with Beer 52, Craft Gin Club, um, Gusto, Hello Fresh over the last year where we've um, done more of a partnership approach because we know that actually our collective subscriber base is, is already more predisposed to um, to digital subscriptions than maybe the kind of average population is. And so social then has kind of um, has had less, I would say, attention. Um, but it is starting something we're starting to engage on and looking at actually what's the role of us having a voice on social as opposed to the brand being present on social. And so we've been doing quite a lot of sort of tests and learns over the last couple of months, um, more around kind of the micro influencer um, uh, connection points within social. And and that's bearing some good fruit. I think that will definitely some, be something we continue to, to um, invest behind next year. It's interesting. I do think the um, the opportunities around collaboration and brand collaboration is is extremely interesting because, as you rightly say, there are other brands who have big databases like you do, have similar target audiences to you, and actually, as you say, the challenge of getting them to add one more thing that comes through their door direct is probably easier uh, than some of the other routes. That's that's really interesting. Um, well, listen, I, I suppose a final a final question to to wrap up. Um, I'm assuming that you know you you cook the odd meal at home, um, so I was I was interested to know you know what is what is you know the ultimate sort of Jaya uh, meal that you love to cook at home. My go-to, it's definitely a Friday night meal, is a porcini mushroom and pancetta risotto. It's definitely a favourite. Kids are always happy when when I cook that. Nice. That sounds like the perfect thing to have after a long week. Well, listen. Jana, thank you so much for, for sharing all your experience uh, with us and, and, and telling us all the story. And thanks for joining us on Food Talk. Pleasure. Thank you, Ollie. Thanks for listening to the Food Talk show. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram or subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts.